0: Hi everyone, I'm Sam Callen. Welcome to this podcast. This podcast is an audio version of a monthly conference call that is done for national governing body coach educators and developers here in the United States. And I've made this an audio version only because so many people consume uh, podcast information on the go on their daily commute or while exercising. So I want an audio version of this. If you want to see the video version in the show notes, there's a link to the that has the original uh, monthly call. So with that, I'm going to go to uh, this month's call. And thank you for joining us. Hey, welcome to this U.S. Center for Coaching Excellence podcast uh, presented by Smarter Coaching LLC. And I'm really thrilled to have on the podcast Kristen Wright from USA Hockey. And I met Kristen at a teaching and facilitating skills workshop that we both went through in uh, April in Colorado Springs. But I wanted to get Kristen on to talk about that workshop, but also to talk talk about her growing up as a female hockey player and then later uh, transitioning into coaching. So Kristen, with that, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on your podcast today.
0: Well, cool. So um, let's start a little bit talking about your introduction to hockey and and playing hockey as a kid i mean you know women's hockey is you know still relatively new um pretty exciting game to watch i saw the women's national team play a few times here in the you know around 2000 or so and when they would come through town it was always fun and exciting but i want to hear your perspective as a a player kind of growing up in the sport where it is still a heavily male-dominated sport.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up in Minnesota where girls have played hockey a, a lot longer, and it's been a much more popular sport there than other places. Sometimes I think we're born with ice skates on our feet, with no bias towards figure skates or hockey skates in Minnesota, and... Because of that, I was exposed to it at a really young age and was lucky enough to start playing hockey um, in Minnesota when I was, I want to say, about 10 or 12 years old. Uh, not too early, but um, my dad played. My mom also actually played hockey, so I think they both were excited when I made the switch over from figure skates to hockey skates.
0: So you started as a figure skater.
1: Yes, learned to skate. Figure skating uh, was How we a lot of us started in Arizona, I'm sorry, in Minnesota without you know having you know, we would get on the ice in the backyard, but then we'd go learn with our teammates in elementary school on you know, the learn to skate basics.
0: Okay, so I grew up in Georgia, so hearing people talk about skating in their backyard is really kind of a foreign concept to me. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) that would make sense. Yeah, it's you know, if you're lucky enough, you get to just go out on the pond in the backyard, shovel it off, and skate around.
0: That, that's so cool. I, I hear, you know, particularly from Minnesotans and um, Canadians about, you know, pond hockey and whatnot. And I'm just kind of fascinated by this culture growing, growing up, having grown up in the South where, you know, Atlanta is famous for losing two NHL franchises, not just one <laughs> and not really growing up with the sport um, and certainly not playing it uh, in that regard. Well, tell us a little bit about, you know, what it was like as a kid, were you playing on, co-ed teams when you were you know 10 11 12 just starting out and and kind of take us navigate up through up until you went to college how about that
1: yeah I, I started playing hockey on an all girls team in Woodbury Minnesota and then my family moved to Arizona and similar to your experience in Georgia where hockey is not the most popular sport there especially in 1997 and I was lucky enough to have a brand new ice rink being built down the road from our house in Arizona, the ice den, where the Arizona Coyotes practice out of. And I was, at that point, I played on a boys, the co-ed team and a girls team. But the girls team was made up of all ages. So it was just this grouping of every girl playing hockey in the area that wanted to be on a team. And not in any similar ages or anything else. It was just an environment to get all the girls together. Okay. And then my co-ed team was a, now it was a Bantam team, but now it would be a 14U team. Uh, played on a co-ed high school down in Arizona as well. And uh, for anyone who's ever met me, I didn't get very tall. I didn't get any taller than I am today <laughs> at that point. I, you know, physically five four and a half, five five on a good day, and I. You know, I switched over to mostly girls hockey my junior and senior year. I had to make a decision to leave Arizona and go to prep school, uh, mainly because I really wanted to focus on hockey at that point. I'd played a lot of other sports in high school, but i become very passionate about ice hockey during my sophomore year of high school, and there, there really weren't a, any opportunities outside of that one large girls team at that time. Uh, it's definitely changed in Arizona. They've made a conscious effort to grow the girls' game there to provide more opportunities. But at that point, I went up to Shattuck-St. Mary's and played on an all-girls high school team. Mm-hmm.
0: You you mentioned this, and we'll we'll kind of come back to this when we start talking about your job at USA Hockey. But you said you played other sports as as a kid. You started as a figure skater, and I, I'm sorry, but the first thing that comes to mind, and this you know, is the movie The Cutting Edge which I'll tell you a story story about that offline. It's nothing. It's just, it's kind of a funny story about uh, the cutting edge that a friend of mine and I joke about all the time with that movie, but yeah. um, Anyway, but, and, and since you are, you know, as as the hockey ADM program is very much into, you know, multi-sport participation and avoiding early specialization. uh, What were the other sports that you played and And do you think that, how if at all did they help you you know as a hockey player or just as an athlete perhaps
1: I I would absolutely they tell you they helped me as an athlete Uh, not all I I mean I honestly my primary sport or the sport I did the most growing up was swimming both my brother and my dad were avid swimmers and we all loved it and so I was swimming in a competitive swim program from I want to say probably too young of an age but mainly because that was the best way to, you know, babysit at that age. My brother was in the pool, Kristen, you should be in the pool. Mm -hmm. And so I swam, I ran track and field. We did triathlons and I played lacrosse. Those were the big ones, um, swimming, hockey, and then a little bit of lacrosse were mainly what I ended up doing once I was, um, in Arizona. And then when I went to Shattuck, they didn't have swimming as an option. So I didn't swim at that point point. and it's a winter sport in college. So unfortunately there wasn't the option to do both in college or actually I chose, I mean, I, I ended up hockey became my favorite sport. I think the team dynamic piece of it uh, versus an individual sport, but the, the athleticism side of it, the ability to go do something else, um, mm-hmm. you know, especially in Arizona when it's a hundred and <laughs> 105 out, I did not want to be in the pool because it was still too hot. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be in the ice rink, but in the winter, <laughs> you want to be in the pool, right? In March, you definitely want to be in the pool. And it's it definitely the benefit that we had of my parents understood that, you know, it was good for us as kids, both mentally and physically to do different things throughout the year.
0: That's awesome. That's, that's great that you live the message. And again, we'll come back and talk a little bit about that. Uh, later on. so you went to where where did you to college and talk about a little bit about your college hockey playing experience?
1: Yeah, I was lucky enough to go to Connecticut College. It's a Division three, NeSCAC school out east. I played all four years there for Coach Kristen Steele, and was lucky enough again to have a good amount of playing time. Uh, I was named a captain my junior and senior year. Uh, I had a, I mean, in all honesty, a really wonderful experience playing hockey at Connecticut College. In addition to, you can't deny the opportunities you have academically at a school like Connecticut College to be able to explore really anything I was passionate about academically and got to study abroad during a summer to Spain and really just can't speak highly enough of my collegiate experience, both, again, academically and athletically
0: that's the free advertising for the Connecticut College Admissions Department I'll send them a bill for that one yeah Yeah. Cool.
1: go ahead though keep in mind I was probably the most indecisive high schooler when it came to picking where I was going to go to school I postmarked yes we still mailed our decisions um, <laughs> I postmarked my decision the day it was due to be postmarked so wow. to have that wonderful of an experience having waited that long to make the decision I think I mean it says a lot about how important that decision can be for student athletes.
0: Yeah, it, it is. My, my, my daughter is 16 right now and starting to think about colleges and what to look at and what to look for. And so I'm, I'm experiencing it from a very different uh, standpoint. I, I made my decision fairly quickly and um, kind of knew where I was going and there were some limitations I had as well uh, with that. But yeah, it's a it's a big decision, especially when you throw the sports aspect into it as well. So uh, after your playing days were over as a collegian, uh, you told me you got into coaching pretty quickly. Uh, How'd that come about? And maybe describe your uh, early coaching experiences here.
1: Uh, So I moved to Colorado right after college, graduated, and um, was going to school out here, but always wanted to get back into coaching. My, My dad had had me take the USA Hockey coaching certification when I was, I think, 15 or 16, so I could do Learn to Skate. I did a little bit of that during college. And so I was really excited to go be a 12U coach in at a local organization. And when I got there, they had asked me if I wanted to help out with the University of Colorado Women's ACHA team. And I was a little taken aback, like, okay, I just got out of college and started getting out on the ice with them. Uh, you know, I thought maybe I could still play, but they had asked for me to coach. And so I ended up being a coach for them my first year out of college as an assistant coach. And it was a really exciting experience. And I ended up, I was actually at CU for seven years after that.
0: Oh, Very nice. Very good. And w- what was that transition like from player to coach for you?
1: in some moments more difficult than others, I think. At first you just kind of go, okay, I got this. And then certain instances come up where you realize that these kids are the same age, if not older than you and have gone through similar experiences as you and really putting on that coach hat and being able to separate yourself. That can be difficult at times, but you just have to make a conscious effort to, it really taught me to be their friends, but not be their friends Mm -hmm. in a way that I was there as a support system, but not to be buddy, buddy with them. I wasn't going to be anyone's best friends, especially while they were in school and just really learn that your role means something and that's the role that they need. They have 21 other friends in the locker room and your job is not to be that person. It's to guide them instead.
0: Uh, and I, I I don't know what the order is here. So I'm gonna say, let's just jump into how you came to be involved with USA hockey. And then um, also wanna talk about your current uh, assistant coach at a high school, at a local high school here. So whichever one of those you wanna tackle first and we'll swing right back around to the other one.
1: Sounds good. We'll start with the USA hockey piece. I, I became involved with USA hockey through the ACHA uh, Ashley Bevin in our adult department and Katie Holmgren had asked me to coach on one of the World University team uh, coaching staffs, and that included all ACHA players. And from that, I started developing relationships with people here at the USA Hockey office. And when my former job manager of girls' player development came up as a new position here, a few people had said, you should apply. And I kind of jumped off a cliff and had a career change and have been with USA Hockey now. For over four years since I made that decision, um, and then after that, I I've recently transitioned to a, add on the ADM manager title uh, and be able to be a part of the ADM group, the American Development Model group here at USA Hockey, and it's been a pretty exciting transition where I get to you know participate with our group of extremely intelligent, forward-thinking ADM managers who are doing our best to impact youth hockey every day.
0: So um, a while back, and I'll put a link in this, I did talk to Kevin McLaughlin about this, uh, a little more in depth about the integration and how USA Hockey went about implementing ADM. So I'll refer folks uh, back to that one to hear it, but maybe just give a real brief, like the elevator pitch on what ADM is for folks who might not know.
1: Yeah, the ADM is a, you know, a structure that gives people the ability to develop athletes at all different ages. Um, There's different uh, philosophies on the physiological and mental development of athletes, but we do our best to teach coaches and parents about the science, about the research, and how, you know, how to provide a fun environment that is age-appropriate for each of the kids in their program. And we've have a large number of ADM managers positioned across the country uh, that work with different areas and different programs in that area.
0: Yeah. I, I tell you many NGB's are very envious that you of your structure and your ability to have field staff out promoting and and all seeing on the same page and promoting this great message about about long-term athlete development and multi-sport participation and you guys have done some really great stuff with that been very much a leader in that area uh and i commend you guys for that uh, taking that role on and and really really throwing everything behind this and not just paying it lip service
1: yeah with our 10-year anniversary just happening and um, usa hockey being willing to put the the people into the field and putting people in place to do it we've been very successful in what we've been able to do, but what's really exciting about it is that we're constantly looking at how we can improve. So even right now, we're going through uh, some discussions on our, you know the science behind where we were ten years ago, and are we still preaching the correct method method now that ten years later, there's definitely people researching and doing studies on what's best for kids. So that's just one example of our group always trying to make sure we're becoming better?
0: Yeah, and so maybe elaborate a little bit on what your role is and also maybe what the regional manager's roles are. And um, I will be talking to Bob Mancini and in, in, in a couple of days, who is one of the regional managers who also met at, your, at the workshop. Um, so um, with that in mind, can I just give an overview of what the roles are for the ADM managers?
1: Of course, our, our regional managers are in charge of a certain geographical area of the country and within that geographical area their expectation is to take our messaging to local programs and educate them on the American development model but also you know educate their coaches their parents and their players on what what would be the best structure for them Uh, pretty much be a sounding board for hockey directors as they're trying to develop the best programming for their players. Uh, Those Our ADM managers also go out to our coaching education clinics. They work with their regional volunteers that sit on their affiliate boards. So on the volunteer side, our rules side, they're a sounding board there. But most importantly, we feel very passionately about getting our regional man- managers out into the field and getting them to interact with programs and provide them with really anything that they would need that could help them do the best job that they can with those that group of athletes.
0: That's very neat. I, I love the approach that you guys are taking with that. And the, the folks that I met in the workshop certainly had the passion for getting better themselves. And um, that, that was really neat to see really encouraging. Uh, last thing on, on the sort of the coaching aspect of it here before we talk about the this the workshop that the uh, USCC put on for you guys is I notice you're also an assistant coach at a local uh, high school here in Colorado Springs for the uh, hockey program there uh, and it's a boys team if I remember right.
1: Yeah we are uh, mainly boys we do it's technically co-ed but I think we've had one female on our team since I started coaching there Um, I got the itch to get back into coaching only one year after leaving CU so (laughs) seemed like the most logical option to hop into the high school scene here in town that's where a lot of people from our office uh, end up coaching and
0: (laughs) I I, I saw that I thought that was pretty funny when I looked it up it's like oh three assistant coaches are all USA hockey personnel I didn't know if if it was a requirement from USA Hockey, a requirement for that high school to hire somebody from there, so I was uh, I, I was amused by that. But I think that must be an awesome opportunity for the kids to have, you know, people. with I mean, your experience, uh, Kenny's experience, and, and Kevin's experience as well. I mean, what a great set of assistant coaches to have!
1: Yeah, we definitely bring a unique perspective to the group. We do. We all travel quite a bit, so it actually works out pretty well that you don't feel like the kids aren't getting something because there's always at least one if not all three of us at practice or games Good. and they're you know they're lucky in the fact that they're kind of sometimes our practice experimental <laughs> ground where guinea pigs. We, yep there are guinea pigs and we and they know that so we do a lot of feedback stuff with them because we're always trying to figure out oh, did you like that did you like how we ran it today or mm-hmm. did you like how we ran it on Wednesday and you know that we get a lot of different feedback from them and uh, their favorite drills tend to be the ones that get moved on to other stuff where we need to have them in our back pocket.
0: Gotcha. That's that's really neat that you have a little laboratory there that, you know, I think works well for for both them and for you as well. Um, so I got to ask this question because there are so few females who are coaching uh, again, you said it's it's technically a co-ed team but in it, you know, it's a de facto all-boys team. Um, mm-hmm. How, you know, what was that experience like for you coming into that situation? And um, it, you know, again, it's such a rare thing that I get opportunity to ask a, a female coach about coaching a boys team, especially high school boys who are, I was a high school boy once. Um, <laughs> we can be obnoxious. We can be uh, terrible human beings. Um, we can also have, a, have the side where you go, wait a minute, he's a teen boy and yet he does something really cool. So um, maybe a little bit, just what your experience was like with that uh, situation.
1: Oh, that's a very good description of high school boys. Coming into it, not, you know, spending a ton of time with high school boys after being in high school. I think that it was interesting at first because we were both sides were experimenting with something new. They, they, hadn't seen it before. And I hadn't been in that situation before. So I, I approached it by I'm just going to do me, I'm going to do what I do on the ice. I've been doing, I've been coaching for a long enough time that I am going to just show them that I know what I'm talking about and try to be in that middle road of confident and also get to know them. I think that's the hardest part when you're brand new, learning all of their names, figuring out who they are, what motivates them. And after after the first half of the season, and now being several years into it, there is no difference to it. I think, you know, we all as coaches have our different approaches, and so that's our staff. We all have our different approaches, but our players probably wouldn't – they'd probably be the first ones to be happy that I'm at, at practice or at a game, and we really don't even – it doesn't really get acknowledged anymore. It's just – even when the new freshmen come in or a new player, everyone's like, "Yeah, that's Coach Kristen."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, we're moving on.
0: Yeah, good.
1: Which is exciting now, but there is a a little bit of a learning curve there for everyone. But I think that our kids really just want coaches who are going to be passionate about their development, going to be prepared at practice, and concerned about their well being and you show that to kids and I think all of our staff does that they they're just happy that there's somebody there for them so that's been the coolest part
0: yeah that's that's pretty neat and I I think you're right I think once you uh, you know what's the saying you have to you have to show them you care before you can teach them or I I Mm -hmm. should have that written down somewhere but you know that's the most important part they want to know that you really are gonna be there for them and And whatnot and and, you know with that so I'll leave it at that well good Uh, all right let's swing around and talk about this workshop that uh, that we endured and uh, you had you had a little bit of a luxury maybe of having had some folks go through it before and you know kind of what had you heard about it and then what was your experience like during the workshop
1: we had a few hints, but not quite a lot of them of really their, what they had said to us is that it's going to be the best thing that you do for coaching coaches. And it's also going to be a terrifying, terrible week, which are kind of opposites. <laughs> and so you don't really know what that means. So there's a little, I don't even want to use the word anxiety, probably some nervousness going into the week mm-hmm. about, oh my goodness, what are they going to drop on us that we're not prepared for? Yeah. And after going through it, I agree that it's not necessarily terrifying, but it pushes you outside of your comfort zone. But the facilitators did it in such a, a way that they were modeling what we should be doing with coaches that they never pushed us a little bit into the freak-out zone, but not ever so much. They would always try to give us get us back in that learning zone. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's huge because at no point, point during the three days was I bored which in this day and age is impressive, right? There's always the, I want to check my cell phone or my Snapchat or, oh, I wonder what my dog's doing, right? There's always that because we have access to that so readily, but that was, I was so much more dialed in to what they were doing in the course and didn't want to miss a single thing happening. That's how engaging I thought the course was.
0: I share that perspective with you. I, I kept my phone in my backpack most of the time, although I took it out and took some pictures, um, and you know, either of slides or something on the wall, or just having a picture that, again, my connection with USCC was to give those to Kristen to use um, with that. And you know, we should probably should talk a little bit about you know, what went on in the workshop. And I, I thought it was neat you talked about the learning zones there because the, uh, Sergio Laura Bursial, who had on the podcast before, Uh, back in November you know he kind of came up with this you have the boredom zone the comfort zone learning zone and the panic zone and I I know at times I was in the bottom part of that panic zone and looking around the room I got the sensation there were probably a few people who were in that panic zone from time to time but like you said the facilitators uh, Kristen and Linda and Melissa were really good at, at making sure you were supported in there and helping the folks out who who maybe were in a little bit deeper than they anticipated. Um, So with that, what what were some of the takeaways and really impactful things for you to give people a feel for what that workshop is like, what that three days is like?
1: Yeah, so the biggest takeaway or the biggest thing that the goal of the workshop in my opinion is to create learning environments that are appropriate for adults. And how do you do that and what are the key elements of that? And from that is where I get my takeaways, that it should be focused on the learner, like that learns principle, that it's learner-focused, the environment you create, not only from the setup of the room, but how you as a a person facilitate the discussion with your participants. Mm -hmm. I thought the active engagement piece of death by PowerPoint should be no more, and I've... (laughs) Been passionate about that for a while. I think that they showed us really creative ways to get rid of PowerPoint and implement activities into our educational process. Mm -hmm. And then when you think about, you know, the need to reflect and for our organization and what we do, not only self reflection, reflection with our athletes, but more importantly, what setup have we created to reflect with coaches, whether it's in a coaching environment? So we, you know, as ADM managers, we go to local clubs and interact with coaches we may have never met before and how we give feedback or how we create feedback in those scenarios, uh, really thinking about what we're doing in those. I thought that was a key takeaway for our organization. And so, and then of course, new. Giving them new information. We want them to learn. At the right. end of the day, we want to wanna to teach them something new to take back to their organization. So for me, that principle covered really any piece during the week that we that we talked about, that we participated in, that we used.
0: And and adding to that, I think a couple of things is the reminder, like you you said, this is really for kind of coach developer the person who's maybe overseeing the development of coaches and it could be on a large scale like you guys or even for a club owner whether in hockey or another sport who has coaches working for them they want to make them better and i think one of the key things is recognizing that they are adult learners and they bring in a a life experience even if they haven't coached for very long they have life experiences i think part of the great thing about facilitating versus uh You know death by powerpoint is by engaging them you're acknowledging you have knowledge you you know you have stuff to bring to the table that you can share with everybody else and i think as an you know as an adult learner if i'm in a workshop i really like showing being showed that i'm valued for that and that i'm not just an idiot who's walking into you know the hotel conference room and there's a screen up there that's got the first powerpoint and it's like oh great I'm going to have the sage on the stage versus the guy by my side to quote John Kessel. Uh, No.
1: Yeah, you're dead on. I think that, especially in the environment we're dealing with, we're talking about sport, something that people are doing because they're passionate about it. They might be doing it because they play, because their kids played, because they've always coached. And it's a different adult learning environment than maybe teaching somebody about investing in whatever it may be right if right. we're talking and I, I would agree that they should not do death by PowerPoint but I do think the just the nature of sport in general and what people bring to it the community that we know exists and even just that environment I think that the that piece that you mentioned is so important because the people that are in our coaching clinics are you know some are doing it because of a variety of reasons but mostly because of a love of sport.
0: Right, yeah, you know, most of the people we're talking about who come in there are not uh, getting rich off of it. They're not the NHL coaches that are you know have seven figure salaries and are doing this a livelihood. Most of them, and I think, this is across the spectrum. E sports are, yeah, they may be getting a, a paid for giving lessons or you know a small stipend or something. Mostly, they're doing it out of the love of the what they do and the love of coaching and um, and whatever their motivation is is from there so um and i think there's a i think there's a great desire for folks who you know done it for at least a few years to i want to get better at it how can you get me better and maybe be more efficient as a coach too which i think is a really key for that volunteer coach who doesn't have a lot of time they're rushing from work grabbing fast food on the way to the you know hockey rink or club and then you know they've got the 12 year olds there they're waiting for them how can I really do this teach it effectively and efficiently and that way maybe able to get more into it if I'm more efficient with it
1: yeah and you make a great point that that there's the spectrum of coaches you have the, the volunteer coach but also that volunteer coach might have a lot of experience and also might be their first or second year and the you know the method that this teaching and facilitation workshop gave us is that there's a lot of peer-to-peer education going on between the adults versus just the one person standing up in front of the room educating. And from that, even just the ability to vocalize their experience but also to bounce ideas off of, uh, reflect on what they're doing, best practices, all those things happen in a much much more natural manner in this setup that we learned about.
0: Yeah. And the thing... I made this point a couple of times to your your coworkers, your cohorts in the group was that, you know, the great thing about facilitating a workshop is that the burden isn't on you to have to have all the answers. And because that's a lot to put on somebody, right? If I'm Mm -hmm. standing up at the front with a PowerPoint, and I've I've taught, you know, post-secondary and, you know, taught exercise physiology. And yeah, there's, I am the guy who, you know, should have all the answers, at least most of them, and not necessarily something that the group can come up with a decision on. There's, you know, the phosphor creatinine cycle is the phosphor cycle. Really can't discuss that a whole lot, but I think bringing that in and something like the workshops that, you know, you guys give is that all of a sudden you don't have, the burden isn't on you to have all the answers. You can draw, draw on this great, you know, years of coaching knowledge to help out with situations and Um, And then I think that makes that community a lot tighter when somebody on the other side of the room pops up and says, Hey, I had that situation. Here's what I did. Or, you know, talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you how I handled that or something. And then it makes that network it makes that community much stronger.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly how I feel about it. I think that's the, one of the biggest values of this type of process.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Any, anything else jump out at you that, uh, as sort of takeaways and maybe things that uh, you've been able to put into practice although I know it's just been a couple of weeks but you never know
1: I think the active listening piece uh, and really what that means and why you're doing it that was another thing that jumped out at me that they always say you should be listening but also in that scenario you really need to be listening because that's going to formulate the discussion because again the participant is a huge part of this discussion and conversation. So you need to you need to be listening to what they're saying to drive the conversation, but also drive it back to maybe where we had intended it to go, but also to make sure that those points are heard and valid. So I think the active listening piece I've tried to incorporate into just my everyday life and also conversations with people. I haven't been on the ice since I was at the Coach Developer Clinic, so that's the best way to, to implement it Um, And then from, you know, even developing coaches, we're right now in the process of planning our hockey directors program that will happen in a couple weeks in Buffalo. And, uh, you know, our department has really looked at how do we we how do we implement this into our it's a three, three and a half day program that covers all age levels of LTAD and age appropriate practice planning body contact really everything we do is crammed in in a good way in those days and we are we've revamped the whole thing to incorporate this style of coaching coaches into what we're going to do so that's going to you should have a podcast with one of us after that i think somebody will be able to have a really good idea of how it went and you know what they've learned from it
0: I, I may uh, I may do that with one of your co-workers that I regularly see at a local craft brewery. Maybe that'll be a good excuse to uh, do that.
1: Um, it's probably a great idea. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, I, I wanted to swing back around because something you said about the active listening really kind of drove home, and you had you mentioned a little bit too, but really at these workshops, one of the things really focused on is being learner focused on what is it that that person is coming there to get out of it. And that active listening allows you to find out, oh, okay, you're here for this reason. And, and, you know, sometimes the workshop that you're doing may not really cover that because it's not within the scope of whatever you're doing with that. But it's always good to know what the learner is wanting to get out of it and making sure that they also walk away with the message that, you guys want as well. Um, again, one of your co-workers and I were talking about this and saying you can have a clinic that has a hundred items in it that you're trying to get across, but really three of them are important. And you want to make sure that they walk away with those three most important ones. If they have other ones, that's great. But if you have a hundred things you're trying to do, then somebody walks away with numbers 98 99 100 but those weren't the most important parts of it as well so i think the other thing that i really learned was folk narrowing down the focus on the goal too and not trying to be everything in a one-day workshop that you may have
1: and it's more challenging i think we learned that having to do it in a 20-minute presentation and how do you narrow the focus of an activity or a learning item for 20 minutes and it's extremely narrow and Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> you learn that in that activity, and it's it is. It's super important because we do as uh, people who either talk about this all the time or are actively engaged in it. A lot of times we are on number ninety nine and a hundred in where we're learning, and that might be where we're presenting or talking about it. When in reality, these coaches might be at one, two, three, or four, and f- making sure we engage the whole group is is. More important than really dialing into something that we think is really important on number ninety nine. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I tell you that the that was the fastest twenty minutes I've experienced in a long time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I,
0: I looked over at the clock at one point. <laughs> so here's the the setup was that we were paired with somebody else, and so Kevin Green from US Lacrosse was there as well, and so we were put together. They, they tried to keep us away from the hockey people as much as possible. And, <laughs> Not uh, true. <laughs> I know you guys were, and, and let me say, you guys were fantastic at at welcoming and accepting us in there. Um, I had, you know, I've known Ken Martell for a long, long time. Kenny Roush and I have, have had a couple interactions along the way, but yeah, you guys, uh, you guys took us right in and and adopted us. And we're, I, I think I can speak for Kevin; we both appreciated that. Um, but Kevin and I were paired up and partly because some of you guys worked together and so it was very intentional about how uh, you guys were paired up as, as I understand it and, and when Kevin and I put together at one point I looked up uh, we had to do a 20 minute facilitated workshop and uh, Kevin and I chose doing one on kind of values and ethics kind of related thing and I remember looked over and it was like we, we were 15 minutes in and we realized oh we have 10 more minutes of material how are we going to cram this into five minutes and um, it wasn't as important for getting, you know, the task done. It was really about how we facilitated it uh, was really. And then the feedback part of that, I think, was very eye opening for for a lot of folks, including myself, getting that feedback uh, as well. And that whole process of giving and getting feedback was really good. I had not done something that intentional in a long, long time.
1: Yeah, I would say it's something we all. Maybe in our professional lives, we don't do as much as maybe we did during our educational years. I think that you, when you're in school at different ages or college, you are giving presentations or even writing papers and getting feedback or whatever it might be. There's always there's always seems to be that feedback. And then when you get into the real world, uh, there's a lot going on, and a lot of times that piece gets left out because it's you know we have you know it's about the next thing. We got to keep moving and that intentional inclusion of it the we made time for this because it is so important for our growth it was it was impressive to be honest i think that it's something that was probably if i had to pick the one thing that i would that i will take away no matter what from everything i do will be that
0: yeah 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 I uh, sort of a, a- with your earlier statement talking about you had been given a little bit of hints and, and stuff i had a few hints of it as well and uh yeah my impression very much was it, it was it was overwhelming and challenging and i would I, I would do it again you know next week if in fact i'm doing the second course that's after the summit here coming up in june and i'm doing that one and i'm and kind of wondering about it because i'll be the first one who's gone through it at least from the you know this perspective and. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm well rested for that one uh, going into it. Yep, um, that'll be
1: exciting, though. I think yeah. you'll you'll learn something new, and you already went through the first one, so
0: yep. <laughs> I can survive anything, right? Yeah. We, yes. We <laughs> you know, you you talked about this earlier, and the thought that crossed my mind when you were talking about the description of it was, I I, I was never in a fraternity, but it sort of reminded me of fraternity hazing a little bit, you know, like the fraternity rush week where. Yeah, it's this thing you're going to do for a week and they're going to do horrible things to you. And then at the end of it, you're going to go, yeah, we really bonded with our group. <laughs> and, you know, now there's probably hazing and bullying and all these stuff that you're not supposed to do in that part. I will acknowledge that. But that was a, the thought that I had going through it. And and now we all have the secret handshake and secret code word that only all of us know who go through the course, and um, so we can see each other out. We can do that, and we'll immediately know you've been through the teaching and facilitation skills workshop. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's hmm. a good way of putting it. That yeah. they—that's what the the expectation was. But I do I do have to push back that the facilitators did an unbelievable job of creating it in an environment that was not hazing, was not. <laughs> bullying with not any of those things.
0: You're right. You're right. Absolutely right.
1: In a way that if other people who were trying to get you to do the same thing in the same amount of time that didn't have that experience would not be the same by any means. So I just think that's a huge piece of the value is in that yeah, it's a lot and it's scary and you're definitely going to do things that you didn't think you'd want to do but (laughs) For good reason.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I did not want to make it sound like anything negative like that. Just uh, kind of like, wow, that was really overwhelming. I remember on Friday, I actually went into my last day of work on Friday, and I was so worn out that I really – there were a handful of things I got done. And then I was – I told him, I'm ready. I'll do my exit interview now and gone because I was – I was really, really tired from that one, uh, and and again, it it but it's that cool kind of tired, kind of like that really hard workout you do, where mm-hmm. at the end of it, you're kind of exhausted. But you go, God, that was awesome. You exactly. Know, that was you know when I do my two by twenty minute hard run workout that what I love so much. I kind of part of part way through going, oh, why am I doing this to myself? And then then I'm going, yeah.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what it was like. Yeah, yep. It's good for me. It's good for yeah. us. Yep. Yeah.
0: Good. <laughs> Um, well, uh, I anything else? Kind of closing comments on that, and then um, you know I'll let you get back to your day job before you know Ken Martell comes around and cries a whip on you.
1: <laughs> no, nothing. Nothing comes to mind. It was great chatting with you. It's a you know a really cool experience. I've had a. I mean, I've been really lucky to be able to be in hockey and coaching hockey for a long time now, and to still be able to go to. An event like that and learn a ton is 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 really great so we only have you know places to go to get better at this point
0: absolutely well and i commend um i commend you guys for coming in with you know pretty positive attitudes it seemed like looking forward to it and um you know and i think that hopefully this will help encourage some other folks to go and you know if you uh if you're cohorts are ever wondering what it's like uh, we're gonna put this on the uscc website so they can go and uh, Listen to just this part of it I'm gonna kind of edit it around uh, for the long version of the podcast and we'll put some on that just have the description as well uh, so you can direct people uh, uh, to listen to this and uh, Hopefully also Bob Mancini's as well who I'm gonna talk to later on so Kristen I appreciate you taking the time and sharing both, but your history as a as a player, coach, and and then about the workshop as well. I appreciate it.
1: Great, great, thanks, Sam.
0: Hey, and once again, thanks for joining us on this audio podcast. I want to uh, put a shout out to Lee Rosefair who provided the music for the uh, intro as well as for this credit roll. So, thank you, and good luck in your coaching.